Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trials stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. Last week, a jury was impaneled for the trial, and opening statements were delivered by both the prosecution and the defense. However, in between those two events, the case made national headlines when it was announced that the jury would consist of 11 white jurors and only one black juror in a community where nearly 25% of the population is black. On Friday, the trial judge in the case, Judge Timothy Walmsley, heard arguments on a motion by Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski that asserted the defense had improperly used their peremptory challenges in the case on the basis of the juror's race. Over the next two episodes, we are going to examine the arguments in this hearing with the help of our consulting producer and in-house expert on these matters, Paul Butler. At the end of the next episode, we'll provide some basic information about the jurors and alternates who will decide whether the defendants are guilty of the crimes charged beyond a reasonable doubt. We will begin this examination right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Linda Dunikowski, who replaced Jesse Evans as the lead prosecutor in the case, addresses the court on the issue of the peremptory challenges. In the Supreme Court of Georgia, there are three steps to this particular process. With any such Batson or McCollum challenge, the first step is on the state to make a prima facie showing that the defense struck these jurors, and in this case we're talking about the 11 African-American jurors because of racial bias. And in this case, the prima facie step for the state is to do the math. In this case, we had 48 jurors to select from. The defense was given 24 strikes. The state was given 12 strikes. And in this case, we had 12 African-American jurors. We had 36 white jurors. So African-American jurors made up one quarter of the jury panel. But the actual jury that was selected has only one African-American male on it. It has 11 white people on it. The state exercised all 12 of its strikes, yes, um, for white jurors, but the defense having 24 of the strikes, double the number of the state, they exercised 13 strikes against white jurors and 11 of the strikes against the African-American jurors, seating only one African-American juror on this panel. We asked the court to find that the state has made its prima facie showing of racial discrimination uh, based on the math for this case. 
All right, we don't need to get into step two at this point, but I don't think from the defense on one. This is the first step as far as the state's prima facie case. Rising first to answer for the defendants is Laura Hogue, who, with her husband, Franklin Hogue, represent defendant Greg McMichael in the case. Yes, Your Honor, I don't think those numbers bear out a prima facie case. I think this is a situation uh, where each of these jurors are going to be have, have to be taken one by one for the state to be able to argue that the strike was racially motivated. Because in this instance, given the numbers, there were 50 qualified jurors. 23 of them were white females. 13 of them were white males, leaving only 12 black individuals, six black females and six black males. So for the main panel, that's what we were dealing with. With the alternate panel, there were no strikes of um, African-Americans by the, by the defense team. So I'm assuming that the numbers we need to look at are just the main panel. And those numbers don't bear out a prima facie case of some intent in selection procedures. And in fact, I will state that we have a very clear selection procedure within the defense team. And the issue of race is not one of the factors. I can address the issue of uh, the race neutral <coughs> reasons for every single one of these, um, but that's- Courtney, speak finding first. Yes, thank you. Mr. Bryan. Speaking on behalf of William Bryan is defense attorney Kevin Goff. Your Honor, all I can say is we can't address the specific strikes, but that was my understanding. There was a, a hierarchy uh, being used and none of that had anything to do with race. Uh, yeah, this is a three-step process. Everybody's familiar with it. Uh, reverse Batson McCollum, however we want to define it. The first step that the court needs to engage in is the analysis, which is really just a, it's a numbers analysis and then a view uh, of the panel in order to work through the prima facie side of it. The court does find that uh, the uh, first step has been satisfied by the state, given the numbers involved, the pool itself. And I've got uh, the same numbers I had for the 48 in the first two panels, uh, 12 black jurors, 36 white. The defense used, I had, yeah, 11. Either way, disproportionate number on the black members of the panel. Court finds in this particular case, the state again has satisfied its burden with regard to a McCall or reverse Batson. Later in this episode, we are going to go through some of the defense team's assertions of their non-racial reasons for striking individual jurors. But first, to offer us context for this hearing and the issues that it raises, we welcome Georgetown Law Professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler. Paul Butler, thank you for being with us today. Hey, Carrie, it's great to be here. Would you take us through what this hearing is all about and the underlying case law? During jury selection in a criminal trial, after the judge has found that potential jurors are qualified to sit on the case, the prosecution and the defense get a certain number of strikes that they can use to remove jurors for virtually any reason. Those are called peremptory strikes. They cannot be used for race or gender, though. 
when lawyers rely on generalizations about race or gender, the Supreme Court says that violates the Constitution. And it's interesting to look at whose constitutional rights are violated. The two who we can imagine are the prospective juror or the person who's accused and a concern about his right to a jury trial. The court is focused on the rights of the juror. And in a case called Batson, it said that when the prosecutor uses race as part of her criteria in employing her preemptory strikes, that violates the equal protection rights of the prospective juror. And the court established a three-part test when this comes up in a criminal trial. In Batson, the court says that the defense first has to establish a prima facie case. That is, it says that we believe the prosecutor is using her strikes based on race. And that's first prima facie case is usually done just based on the strikes and the statistics. So in the case in Georgia, the concern was that the defense had used 11 strikes to get rid of 11 African-American jurors out of the 12. And that's usually enough. Statistical evidence like that doesn't mean that there's intentional discrimination or that there's been a Batson violation, but it's enough to reach the next step, which is that the other side, in this case, it's the defense, has to come up with a race-neutral reason for why it struck the jurors. It has to explain to the judge in a way that makes sense. Your Honor, we didn't strike this person because she's Latinx. We didn't strike this guy because he's African-American. We struck him because of this concern. And in the third step, the judge announces whether he or she accepts the race-neutral findings or instead believes that there's a pretext and that really there has been intentional discrimination. Batson was a case that was about prosecutors using their challenges to try to get rid of African-American jurors in a case in which there was an African-American defendant. In a later case called McCullough, the Supreme Court extended the Batson analysis to defense attorneys as well. So under the law, defense attorneys, just like prosecutors, are not able to use peremptory strikes on the basis of race. And a later case extended that same analysis to gender. And so sometimes it's called, I guess in Georgia, a reverse Batson motion. That's the term that we'll hear in the hearing. But the actual case is called McCullough. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Now we are going to listen in on some of the arguments regarding specific black jurors against whom the defense used their peremptory challenges. We begin with the first juror the parties discussed, Juror 216. We will spend a bit of time on this argument so we can get a sense of how each lawyer presented their positions. Juror 216 was described by the pool reporter covering jury selection as a black woman in her 40s. Laura Hogue, on behalf of Greg McMichael, begins by stating her race-neutral reasons for striking this juror. Juror number 218, Your Honor was on panel six, and that juror raised her hand to say she could not be, she had formed and expressed an opinion, and that opinion was, I feel like they're guilty. In her juror questionnaire, she said a young man was shot due to his color, and the three men that committed the act almost got away with it, almost got away, excuse me. She raised her hand to say that she was biased uh, against one side, and she raised her hand to say that she had a negative of feelings about all three defendants. Um, She said that the only thing that would change that negative opinion from fixed to changeable was to, depending on what I hear in the courtroom, she Uh, said later on that she believed uh, that asked about the opinion that yes I have formed and formed it I feel like they're guilty based on the video and based on the media Uh, and that the things that were subject to changing that would be what she heard in the courtroom which we uh, attempted you know to consider some questions that had been previously objected to about trying to develop that as a burden shifting, but that's really nothing but a burden shifting. And then during the questioning, she stated, I believe he was shot because of his color. She was asked, what made you think that? And she said, I had heard that they called 911 and 911 told them to just leave him alone, but they still went after him and taunted him and shot him. I heard that on a YouTube video. She also indicated the support that she'd done for the run with Ahmad or justice for Ahmad uh, cause. I did a bike ride for Ahmad to raise money, I think for a lawyer or the family. Then speakers came in and they talked about justice for Ahmad. She was asked why you wanted to join the ride, and she said, I wanted to ride for his death, you know, to support the family. Given your support for Ahmad's family, do you think you could really be fair to the McMichaels? And I use an ellipses, I think like the court does when there's an extremely long pause, and the answer was, I think I could. 
she had a very favorable view of Ahmad, she volunteered, and was asked about that, and she said, well, given the way that he died. She was questioned about her having indicated that she believes that black and white people are not treated equally by the police, and asked how she feels race plays into this case. And she immediately went to this feeling. I feel like sometimes we don't belong in some areas, and that's why police take actions, as if we're in the wrong place or in the wrong cars. I feel that Travis shot Ahmad Arbery because of race, because he was where he was at in that neighborhood. Asking again, given your life experiences and opinions, do you think you're the right juror for a case like this? I think so, but then she said, the answers that I've given, I don't know. And she was asked, sounds as if you're expressing some doubt. Can you dig deep? And she said, uh, asked if you could be fair and open. And she said, I like to stand on the side of right, meaning she has a very aspirational sense of what she should be answering and how she should be feeling. For that reason, Your Honor, this juror was a completely appropriate peremptory strike. And as we're going through each of these jurors, and these are race-neutral reasons, I will say that most of the jury selection in this case and the decisions we had to make is the epitome of the lesser of two evils. We are stuck between a rock and a hard place, given the fact that the majority of the African-American jurors that came in here were struck for cause immediately because of their firm opinions. Later on, we had some African-American jurors whose opinions were very strong, but they indicated that they could put them in a box and set them aside. So it's up to us to use our peremptory strikes to say to ourselves, is that the kind of juror, given those impressions and feelings weeks ago when they filled out the questionnaire and still fixed on those opinions today? Would you want that juror judging you in this case? And the answer is a resounding no. Prosecutor Dunikowski responds on behalf of the state. So, Judge, the problem with the defense's argument here is simply that the jurors weren't asked for an opinion on the questionnaire. They were asked, what do you believe the facts of this case to be? And every single juror came in here having written down what they believe the facts to be. And they all told us they got that off of the news media, social media. And of course, we pointed out, well, that's often wrong. It doesn't have all the evidence in the case. And are you willing to listen to the evidence in the case? She indicated she would. She also indicated she was very nervous about being here. Um, She has a job that she's been at for 15 to 20 years and actually knew Mr. Goff uh, from that position. So in this case, there is absolutely nothing that the defense has done but list out all of the things she just said, okay? And we all know that that's what she said, but they failed to provide any sort of reason to strike her that she's different than any other juror who came in here stating facts that they had heard from the news media and TV, saying they had formed an opinion based on those facts from the news media and TV, and then, of course, said, well, I formed an opinion. Now, the quintessential question isn't whether you formed an opinion. Numerous people came in here and said, yes, I formed an opinion. It's guilty. But the real question here was, can you put that aside? Can you put that opinion aside? Because it's been based on news media, 
the video. It's been based on the opinions on social media, not on the evidence within these four walls. And in this case, this juror did indicate she could do that. She was open to all alternatives and facts in the case. And despite her opinions about numerous issues, she said she could give the defendants a fair trial in this case. So right now, the state doesn't see that the defense has given any reason for striking her because she said the same thing just about every other juror who came in here said about being able to put it aside, being able to be fair and impartial to the defendants in this case and to give them a fair trial. She indicated that she could be fair and impartial, that other people had expressed their opinions to her, but that's not her opinion, that she was able to weigh things herself. So we ask that you find that this litany of these are the things she said doesn't really show that there's a race neutral reason for striking her. The state's position is, is that she was struck because she is an African-American female, not because she's any different than any other juror who came in. She is no different than any other juror who came in here having information about the case, an opinion about the case, and said they could set it aside. Thank you. Judge Walmsley invites Travis McMichael's attorney, Jason Sheffield, to offer his argument on the state's motion. Sheffield begins his argument. state's response is essentially non-responsive to the McCollum challenge. To, to say to the court, this juror said they could be fair after we questioned them, is all that they said. So that's not helpful to the court in the challenge under what the law requires for the state to rebut. There's a lot of jurors that came through here that said they could be fair. We had given race-neutral reasons because of the opinions, not just facts, but the opinions of this juror, as were expressed by a lot of other white jurors who were struck, who we moved for cause on. The people that we've seated, we believe, came to court and did not hold such strong opinions. So the state needs to come back to the court and say, not this juror can be fair because they said they could be fair. They need to come back and say, they're not telling you the truth, Judge. They're using these answers as a cover. And the only way you can assess that is to comparison to other jurors. I don't think that you can just repeat that the juror said they could be fair. Finish with, which was when compared, went through what this juror had said and then said, when compared to the, <coughs> those answers when compared to white jurors are the same. That's what I heard from the argument. I think the answer would be when compared to a juror that they sat, one of these people that's an actual juror, when compared to that one, that they were not on. You think we're on the same page? I think we're on the same page. Okay. I mean, I understand. Okay. Yes, I, I feel like we're saying the same thing. I heard the state's argument. Right. Yeah, I understand what the, what the argument is. William Bryan's attorney, Kevin Goff, rises to address the court on the matter. Goff made news last week when he told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that he had concerns that the final jury pool will be underrepresented by white men older than 40 and without four-year college degrees, whom he has also called, quote, Bubba's or Joe Sixpacks, end quote. Goff told the AJC, quote, we want a diverse jury, but we are missing a segment of what would normally be here, end quote. Goff begins, if I may. I, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone when, when I hear a juror that arguably, arguably could have been excused for cause because of a personal investment in the case. I mean, I've never been in a, tr a trial where a, or, say, that's what we're trying to avoid is getting back into strikes for cause. Right. While we're questioning the, the truthfulness of the reasons that are stated here, I, 
I mean, I just don't understand how the state in good faith in this situation, in a case where a juror could have been excused for, could arguably have been excused for cause, how we could go from that juror possibly being excused for cause to a point where they couldn't legally be stricken? In what free country would a juror who went on a bike ride to raise money for the opposing side's legal team, how that person could be, the defendant could not strike them for that reason? And that reason alone? That's Kafkaesque. And I'm just suggesting that this process would be a whole lot simpler if the state would take a moment and further consider the jurors they're asking about and pick the ones where there's a genuine issue instead of playing to the cheap seats rather than your honor. We just felt the state's answer was not responsive to the court's inquiry. I think we're on the same page here. I'd just like to move through it. On our next episode, we will follow as the defense proceeds through the list of the other 10 black jurors that they had blocked from the jury. We will hear Judge Walmsley's decision, we will hear more from Paul Butler, and we will offer a general overview of the individuals who are on the final jury panel. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. This episode was written by Karen Ann Coburn. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. <laughs>